This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Who owns the West? That's the provocative question raised in this month's National Geographic magazine. The edition looks at Yellowstone National Park and the tensions between ranchers, conservationists, developers, and tourists, to name just a few. All of these interests pull at the park, and that friction is also playing out in other Western states like Colorado. David Quammen is the issue's author, and he joins me now from Bozeman, Montana. David, welcome to the show. Very good to be with you, Andrea. In writing about this battle for the West, you point to competing interest. interests. Who would you say are the main players in all of this? Well, I've tried to present um, not just the issues, but the history of the issues and the evolution of Yellowstone as a park and as an ecosystem um, in the American mind. Um, now, the most obvious in terms of the the interested parties are uh, you've got biologists on the one hand who are concerned with the survival of the wildlife populations in Yellowstone Park and throughout the ecosystem. You've got private landowners who are also part of the ecosystem raising livestock. You've got people who are moving to the region new and want to buy land and and get a get a get a piece of the the wild. Uh, so there are these various different um, pressures and conflicts that involve where the wildlife goes. Um, bison and elk need to migrate out of Yellowstone National Park during the winter to get on winter range. Where mm-hmm. do they go? Well, generally they go onto national forest land or big private ranches. Will those uh, lands be managed in perpetuity for the good of the wildlife as well as the other interests and resources? Will those private lands be sold off for subdivision and development? Uh, there's a whole uh, there's a whole constellation of issues, but at the heart of it is this magnificent place, which we've we've tried to describe its right. history, its ecology. And how does all of this tension affect Yellowstone? What does it do to it? Well, one of the things that's happening is that Yellowstone is in danger of being loved to death. Mm-hmm. Um, Yellowstone Park last year had more than four million visits. Uh, Grand Teton Park, which is also part of the Yellowstone ecosystem, had more than 3 million. Most of those people drive private automobiles through the park. Um, they, uh, the time may be coming when there are some constraints on not who can visit Yellowstone and, and Grand Teton and this ecosystem, but the ways in which c- we can visit it. Uh, it may be that driving private automobiles is something that can't continue indefinitely into the future. People need to realize that um, although Yellowstone Park was founded for the benefit and enjoyment of the people, it is still a finite resource. If we want it to continue to be wild, we have to recognize that it is a finite resource, and that means we can't continue to expand roads, uh, hotels, tourist facilities in the park and still have that wildness, still have grizzly bears and wolves and mountain lions and and all of their prey species. And you say Yellowstone is being loved to death. Can you give me an example of that? Well, um, I just mentioned one. That's the matter of private automobiles. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't until about 1915 or 1916 that private automobiles were even allowed into Yellowstone Park. It was unimagined at the time that the park was founded back in 1872. 
Um, and it was a great move toward democratization because before that, it was literally the carriage trade who got to visit Yellowstone. People who could come west on the Northern Pacific Railroad and then tour the park in, in stagecoaches and carriages and stay at the hotels, which were, uh, which were not cheap. And then beginning um, about the time of the First World War, people for the first time were allowed to drive their Model Ts and their Model As into Yellowstone and uh, into car camp. And so it was a democratizing thing. It was a good thing. But um, but now, when we have four million visitors a year, uh, and it's sometimes Yellowstone, parts of Yellowstone turn into a big traffic jam, a big parking lot, um, uh, we have to realize that, that there have to be limits. Likewise, with people coming out and wanting to buy pieces of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, public lands, and, and uh, saying, well, I love Yellowstone, so I want a piece of it. I've bought 250 acres. I'm going to put up a cabin. That's one of the trends that is eroding the wildness of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And how is Yellowstone an example of what's going on elsewhere in the West? Well, Yellowstone was the first national park in the U.S. It was actually the first national park in the world. Um, and uh, when it was founded, we didn't realize uh, really why we were find, founding it. Uh, it was a scenic spectacle, first of all, a place where there were great canyons and waterfalls and geysers and hot springs. So it was the geological spectacle, the landscape spectacle, that caused the creation of Yellowstone back in 1872. But the idea has evolved. As I say in the piece, it was a big idea that has gotten bigger and a good idea that's gotten better. We realized that Yellowstone was also a great place uh for the protection of wild animals and the processes that interconnect them. Now the Yellowstone ecosystem is the largest area of wild landscape in the heartland of the American West, in the lower 48 states. It's emblematic of the way we deal with our national parks and our wild landscapes generally, but it is the um, uh, the signal, the iconic emblem, because it is so large that it contains grizzly bears, mountain lions, wolves, uh, black bear, coyotes, the full complement of species. That makes it both representative of our relationship with nature and very, very special. Many of the issues playing out in Yellowstone are familiar here in Colorado. Wolves, for instance, they were introduced to Yellowstone in the 1990s. In Colorado, though, yes. the... Reintroduced, we should right, say. Right, I should say reintroduced. Um, in Colorado, though, the Parks and Wildlife Commission recently said it was opposed to the release of wolves. Why are wolves such a flashpoint in the West? That is really a mysterious good question. There is something about wolves that causes a level of polarity, a level of conflict, unlike any of the other um, big predatory animals. It's not true of bears, not even true of grizzly bears, certainly not true of mountain lions, but there's something about wolves. I don't know if it goes back to um, to the mythology of wolves from Europe in the Middle Ages or just what it is, but the people who hate wolves hate wolves more ferociously than anyone hates grizzly bears mm. or mountain lions. And, um, uh, and it's not... Um, 
It's not rational, or it's certainly not purely rational. Uh, wolves do occasionally prey on livestock, um, and uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service and uh, worked very hard on that when wolves were being reintroduced to Yellowstone and the National Park Service, and the Fish and Game Commissions of Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho now deal with that. It is a tractable problem. Wolves are now hunted and trapped in Montana and the other states, uh, and their population is controlled. Uh, but, but there is something preternaturally provocative about wolves, and I can't explain it, and I've never seen anybody else explain it. It goes beyond the rational costs of sharing landscape with a big predator. Hmm. Well, let's move from wolves to the great grizzly bears. Uh, Many consider grizzlies a Yellowstone success story. The number of grizzly bears has grown dramatically, um, so much so that the government's considering delisting it as endangered. The last grizzly in Colorado was killed back in 1979. Do you think the reintroduction of grizzlies should be a goal throughout the West or, or just Yellowstone? Well, I think the first step is to secure the Yellowstone population. Um, until, as you say, until um, relatively recent decades, there were there were small pocket populations of grizzly bears in Colorado and elsewhere in the in the West, and uh, and now the grizzly bear population in the Glacier Park ecosystem for one and the Yellowstone ecosystem for another are the only two really sizable, plausibly viable populations. Um, as you said, um, uh, the grizzly bear of Yellowstone has recovered in recent decades. At the time that it was listed as threatened under the endangered species list back in 1975, the population had had collapsed to only about 140 bears, grizzlies in the in the Yellowstone area. Now it's back up to probably 700 in the area. Um, where biologists monitor and count grizzlies and possibly as many as a thousand throughout the whole ecosystem. And so now there is a proposal to delist the grizzly. Very complicated, uh, very controversial. And what I ask people to do is educate yourselves a bit about the complexities and the dynamics of that population and that decision um, before your knee jerks and you, and you have a strong opinion. Get some information. Uh, one way to do that is this issue. And then once the grizzly of Yellowstone and the glacier ecosystem are secured, it would be wonderful, I think, if we reintroduced um, grizzlies to some of the wild landscapes in the areas where there is enough habitat for them. But I recognize that's problematic, too. Grizzlies are big, dangerous animals, and um, and managers need to consider uh, how people will or will not be able to live um, in the same vicinity and share landscape with them. I don't underestimate the, um, the anguish or the difficulty of that problem. David Quammen is the author of this month's issue of National Geographic, which focuses on Yellowstone National Park. He's with me from Bozeman, Montana. More after a break when we ask whether people's love of the outdoors is, is more destructive than it is beneficial. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're speaking about all of the different players trying to stake a claim in the West, like ranchers, developers, conservationists, and tourists. David Quammen is with us. He wrote all of this month's special issue of National Geographic on Yellowstone National Park. 
David, ranchers are a traditional stakeholder in the West, but you believe their role goes well beyond this cowboy heritage. What's the importance of ranching in the West? Well, let me let me talk about the importance of ranching in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem first. Um, the uh, the ecosystem consists of more than just Yellowstone National Park, Grand Teton National Park, of course. It also encompasses parts of five national forests, BLM land, part of the Wind River Indian Reservation, some state land, and private lands, a large segment of private lands. And much of those private lands are old, big, private cattle ranches, including the, the TE Ranch on the uh, east side of the ecosystem outside of Cody, Wyoming, which was Buffalo Bill Cody's own ranch, hmm. at least the core of it was. Um, at the beginning of the 20th century. Those big private ranches are crucial to the functioning of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and the populations of animals within it because they represent winter range for, uh, in particular for the elk, the elk herds of Yellowstone. Elk migrate from lowland winter range um, where they spend the where they spend the, the cold, snowy months and can survive and get some grass in the summer up into the highlands at the core of the Yellowstone ecosystem, including the highlands of Yellowstone Park. They move in and out. An elk biologist who studies migrations named Arthur Middleton that I've worked with on this, mm-hmm. this says that they move in and out like a great pulse beat into the heart of Yellowstone during summer and back out to the winter range on the private ranches and elsewhere during the winter. And that pulse beat needs to continue or the great elk populations don't survive. And if the elk populations don't survive, the grizzly is in trouble because that's part of its uh, food base and uh, there's effects throughout the ecosystem. So those big private ranches, some, some people say, well, you know, raising meat, raising beef in the West is not the most efficient use of, of lands. But whether or not you're in favor of raising beef, we need to remember that those big private ranches perform a great service to the ecosystem by, uh, by hosting elk populations and deer population, in some cases pronghorn populations, during the winter months. If those ranches are sold off, subdivided, turned into suburbs and more sprawl, then we will lose much more than we lose um, from cattle sharing, um, sharing landscape with elk, with wolves, and with grizzly bears. And, and we should say that Yellowstone is largely in Wyoming, a little bit in Montana. And when we talk about who owns the West, we have to talk about government land. Yellowstone's a national park, and 36% of Colorado's federally owned. Whose interest does all of this land represent? Well, of course, these these lands, these federal lands, national forests, national parks, BLM land, belong to every American citizen. Um, I asked um, a, a Wyoming hunting guide that I spent eight days in the backcountry with at one point, "Who owns this place?" And he said, "He said, well, the people do, the taxpayers of America." I asked him, "Does a wolf hugger in New Jersey own it any less than a hunting outfitter in Cody, Wyoming?" He said, "Absolutely not." Everybody owns it equally. But the people who live in the ecosystem, the people who live in the West, are the ones who see these issues most acutely, who enjoy the most direct benefits from wildlands and from other public lands, and who also pay the price of, of whatever um, costs there are to living side by side with wild animals. 
And Yellowstone spans more than 2 million acres, but you worry that Yellowstone is too small and contained to protect its wildness. You describe it in other national parks as islands. What do you mean by that? Well, let me clarify. Yellowstone Park is about 2 million acres, yes. The greater Yellowstone ecosystem is about 10 times that. Much larger. Uh, Much larger. And yet, even the greater Yellowstone ecosystem... So. Uh, I say in the piece, it's important to remember that Yellowstone Park is not an island. It's part of this greater ecosystem. And the um, the invisible boundaries of Yellowstone Park are not respected by the wildlife. They don't – the grizzly bear or an elk doesn't see where the, the boundary of Yellowstone Park is. But the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is, to a great degree, an ecological island. This This great amoeboid mass of wild landscape surrounded by the modern West, surrounded by – um, towns like Bozeman, where I live, and, and shopping malls and highways uh, and golf courses and Starbucks. And if you are um, a migrating bird, that's not very significant. But if you are a big animal, big mammal like a grizzly bear or an elk or a bison, then that island is where you live. And when you stray off of that island, you are likely to drown, by which I mean get yourself killed mm-hmm. out there in the uh, in the lands that are not hospitable to, uh, to wild animals. And there are consequences to that. Um, I wrote a whole book about this 20 years ago called The Song of the Dodo, about evolution and extinction of species and populations on islands. Things that are confined on islands are most likely to go extinct. And the smaller the island, the more likely those populations are to go extinct. So the fact that Greater Yellowstone is a big island, the biggest island of wild landscape in the lower 48 states, is fundamental to the fact that it has preserved uh, such a, a full complement of uh, wildlife species and the processes that interconnect them. Yellowstone is eight times bigger than Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. And does that mean that the ecosystem here in Colorado uh, at Rocky Mountain National Park is under greater threat than Yellowstone because it's so much smaller? Well, yes. I mean, it's it's less intact. It's no coincidence that the grizzlies of of Colorado have disappeared because they didn't have a big enough island to live on. That's the main factor involved there. It's not that it's not that Colorado uh, persecuted its grizzlies more directly than the people of Wyoming and Montana persecute, persecuted the grizzlies of Yellowstone. No, it has much more to do with the size of the island that they had to live on. The islands in Colorado just weren't big enough to support a continuing viable population of grizzly bears, so so they winked out. A lot of people are moving to Colorado these days, um, and since 2010, the state's population has grown by half a million people, and many of them choose the West because of the natural beauty. And you ask, and I quote here, are we making the West a big, boring suburb with antler motif doorknobs? And what's your answer? Is our love of the outdoors a good thing, or is it ultimately just too destructive? Well, of course, it's both a good thing and it can be destructive. Um, everything we do in the outdoors, everything we do in wild landscape, in, in backcountry or the Rocky Mountains, um, I would say opens our souls and benefits us deeply and, um, and helps us understand uh, life generally and our relationship with the natural world in particular. And yet still, every time we 
um, we use these places, we go into these places, there there are costs, there are impacts. If we're hiking, maybe there are, the impacts are fairly small, but if, if we don't carry bear spray and we, we get ourselves eaten by a grizzly bear, then that grizzly bear is likely to be killed. So there are consequences. If we go in with motor vehicles, there are more consequences. Um, and if we go in and buy land, if we say, oh, we love the West so much, we're going to buy our place, and we buy 200 or 300 acres, and we put in a road and put up a cabin and have a dog and a satellite dish, then we are changing the landscape. We are destroying what we love. So there's a slogan, and I've said it before. I don't know who invented it. Some people have accused me of having invented it, but it goes like this. If you love the landscape, live in town. Mm -hmm. Visit the wild places, but you don't have to own a piece of the wild places. You don't have to live there. David, thanks so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for your interest in this, Andrea. I appreciate it very much. David Quammen wrote this month's special issue of National Geographic magazine on Yellowstone National Park. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Everyone knows caffeine can cause the jitters, but for teenagers, the effects could be long-lasting. That's according to a new study published in the journal Psychoneuroendocrinology. It's the subject of today's beta test, where we explore groundbreaking research in Colorado. Ryan Baktel is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder. So we know caffeine can make people anxious, but you believe the effects on adolescents are more serious. What can happen when you mix caffeine and teenagers? Well, one of the important things with uh, teenage use is that their brains are still developing. And Uh, the brain doesn't fully develop until early 20s. And so when you mix in a a chemical, even though we think caffeine is uh, relatively safe and harmless, um, in a developing brain, it could cause uh, substantial alterations in how that brain develops. Now, you didn't do the study on adolescent humans. You used rats. How did the study work? Well, um, we added caffeine to the drinking water. um, And uh, in that way, we were able to uh, determine some of the causal effects of caffeine consumption during uh, the developing adolescent period. Um, and then we later tested the rats on um, anxiety behaviors, uh, behaviors that uh, typically make the rats somewhat fearful of uh, social situations or um, situations that might uh, expose them to, to predators. And what did you find? Well, we found that um, not only during the caffeine consumption did they show increased anxiety, which is something we expected, um, we found that even after the caffeine was removed from the drinking water, um, we still found uh, increased anxiety in the, in those uh, rats. And what kind of behaviors did you observe that suggested that these rats were anxious? Right. Well, normally rats will uh, socialize with other rats. And one of the tests that we did was we put two rats together. Normally they'll engage in some pro-social behaviors, sniffing and grooming and things like that, Uh, maybe play behavior. Uh, What we found is that the the animals that drank caffeine as adolescents uh, really didn't do that at all. In fact, they exhibited more antisocial behavior, which was indicative to us that maybe there was a a social anxiety um, being displayed. And how long did the rats show signs of this anxiety after 
after drinking caffeine? Um, we tested in the study. We looked um, a week after caffeine removal. We have some other studies that were not in that uh, published work that suggested it lasts for six weeks after caffeine uh, consumptions, and that's a pretty long time in, in, a, in a rat's life. And what about long-term effects into adulthood? So the effects that we tested were, in fact, into adulthood. So in, even, in a rat's life, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So even though the caffeine was consumed while the rats were adolescents. The caffeine was removed, and then they were tested in uh, in the rat adulthood. Mm-hmm. What about just giving caffeine to the adult rats? It doesn't have that same long-lasting effect. Right. So we, we conducted similar studies uh, where the caffeine was consumed in adults, um, gave them took, took the caffeine away, and they did not show the same increase in anxiety behavior. Now, I will say uh, during the caffeine consumption, the adult rats did also show increased anxiety, mm-hmm. which is, again, something that, that we know happens with, with high uh, levels of caffeine consumption. And how do we know adolescent humans would be similar to adolescent rats and that the trajectory would be the same? Well, that's a good question. Um, there is some uh, some evidence. Um, there were some studies done uh, in young uh, adolescent males that show that um, higher levels of caffeine consumption or um, energy drink consumption is associated with uh, increased risk, risk for uh, anxiety disorders, and uh, they show um, more anxiety-like uh, phenotypes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, do you have a sense of how much caffeine it might take to cause an anxiety disorder in an adolescent? Yeah, that's another great question. We know that in in adults, safe levels of caffeine are two or three cups of of coffee a day. Um, in adolescence, it's not quite clear. Uh, we imagine that it would probably be, probably be less uh, uh, caffeine consumption, um, and that's still an open question for sure. And other studies have shown, as you say, this correlation between caffeine and anxiety disorders in kids. How is your study different? Well, the difference is uh, in in some of the studies I mentioned earlier, um, those are really just correlative studies. So it's not quite clear whether maybe anxiety-prone individuals consume caffeine or if there are other factors that might lead to the increased incidence of of anxiety disorders. Uh, In our studies, that was the one variable that we manipulated. We added caffeine to the drinking water. The the animals were otherwise identical. Um, Mm. And so uh, we think that it provides a little bit more solid evidence that the, uh, the caffeine itself was what was causing the increase in anxiety. So I think of my own kids who love the chance to get one of those sugary, caffeinated coffee drinks, um, and lots of kids like the caffeinated energy drinks. Are kids drinking more caffeinated beverages than they did, say, a decade ago? Um, I would say the the percentage of, of kids drinking caffeinated beverages probably hasn't changed. What's changed is the type of beverages that they're consuming. So yeah, the, the sugary uh, energy drinks, uh, lattes and such that you, you can find um, are, are now loaded with more caffeine. And so the higher amounts of caffeine, I think, is something to be wary of and something to be cautious about in teenagers. And at what age uh, do we stop worrying about these kids? At 18, at 21? Or are we less worried when they start drinking coffee? Yeah, again, the, the, the developmental period that we really focused on was adolescence, which, which lasts through about um, 20, I would say, uh, in a human. And so I would, you know, that's kind of the, the end of the, the adolescent developmental period. And so I would imagine that the, you know, the safety index would decrease then where we would be okay to drink a little bit more caffeine. And, um, What's the takeaway here? Should kids stay away from caffeine entirely? Uh, what do you think? 
Well, you know, caffeine has beneficial effects. Obviously, it allows uh, potentially kids to study longer and stay awake and, and engage in more activities. Um, but I do think that there should be some caution in, in how much is being consumed and the type of beverages that are could be being consumed. Um, you know, it's it's really a, a an awareness thing as opposed to a cut it entirely out of your out of your uh, repertoire. Do you have kids? Would you tell them never to drink caffeine yourself? I would definitely monitor the amount of caffeine that uh, that, that that my kids would drink. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for being here. Absolutely, you're welcome. Ryan Baktel is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at at neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder. Still to come, a book that traces caffeine from China to Colombia to Mexico. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Before the break, we heard how caffeine affects young people. But what about the rest of us? It's something author Murray Carpenter has thought a lot about. He attended CU Boulder about 30 years ago, and he remembers coffee lovers hanging out at Trident Booksellers and Cafe on Pearl Street. Today, locals still know Trident as a good place to get a blast of caffeine, like longtime customer Daniel Gesmer. I do rely on coffee to, to kind of accelerate my mental processes and get things done. Don't try to get between me and my coffee. It will cost you dearly. Trident's Noah Westby says caffeine creates connections among customers. I think it's kind of the centerpiece for the gathering. I think it's the quintessential element why people come down and they talk politics, they talk family and talk daily lives over their cup of tea or over their cup of coffee. Well, with his caffeinated memories of Boulder, Murray Carpenter set out on a worldwide expedition, visiting tea shops in China, Colombian coffee plantations, and Mexico, Mexican cacao farms. The result is his book, Caffeinated, How Our Daily Habit Helps, Hurts, and Hooks Us. Let's listen back to his 2014 conversation with Ryan Warner. Murray, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me on and, and for getting that uh, wonderful tape of Trident, which really takes me back. <laughs> well, how much caffeine have you consumed already today, first off? Uh, I'm, I'm on my third cup. Third cup. Okay, I'm still working on my first. You're ahead of me. Um, we mentioned that your interest in caffeine started in Boulder many years ago. What was running through your mind back then? Well, back then as an undergraduate, I, I wasn't really a big coffee drinker before I came to college. And there were these wonderful cafes in, in Boulder where my friends and I used to gather, uh, not just Trident, but also Brillig Works and Penny Lane and places like that. And I noticed as I, you know, as we drank coffee there, how much it really did seem to help uh, to get ready for a study session, how it helped to focus my mind. And I became intrigued. I was studying psychology, and I ended up doing a, a paper on caffeine senior year. And it's kind of been an, an interest that uh, stuck with me through the years. And it's an interest that not only extends to the mental effects of caffeine, but to the physical effects, the effects even on athletes, which we'll talk about in, in a few moments. Did, did caffeine make you a better student back in, uh, in those days? Boy, I needed all the help I could get, and I, I think it really did help. And again, it, it has this, uh, it, it can really help you focus for a writing project or, or that sort of thing. This is one of the things that we, that we love about caffeine is it really tends to, uh, to allow us to focus, to increase our alertness, our acuity. And so, yeah, it, I, I felt it helped a lot. How does caffeine work? Explain the science of this drug. Well, the main way that it do, works its magic in our brains is actually fairly simple. 
there's a neurotransmitter called adenosine that essentially serves to tell the brain when we're tired, when we're fatigued. And caffeine is able to sit in the receptors where adenosine should be lodging and is able to sort of nudge adenosine aside. And in blocking adenosine, it's able to make us feel more alert. That's that's basically the way it, it does. It works its magic. And one of the interesting things is when we're fully caffeinated, for those of us who, who drink coffee, it's actually blocking, caffeine is blocking probably 50% of your adenosine receptors. Hmm. So it, it is tricking the body into thinking it's not tired. It's bypassing the system that uh, that tells us we're fatigued. That's that's a short way of saying it, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, the, the thing is, uh, caffeine, of course, even when we're not tired, when we're, when we're uh, sort of firing on all cylinders, it, it's still able to give us a little bit of a boost. So it's, it's not quite as simple as just sort of uh, turning off the tired switch. Right. Well, you've looked at how athletes, especially triathletes, use caffeine to enhance their performance. What did you learn when you looked at that? Yeah, well, this really fascinated me. And and I used to race bikes when I was at CU and, and for a few years after that. And so 30 years ago, we already knew that caffeine gave you a bit of a boost for a race. And, and so I used to drink like a short, strong cup of coffee before a race. What's changed in the intervening years is that the science of caffeinating athletes has become much more precise. We know much more about how it works and how to optimize the doses. So uh, caffeine can help an athlete, say, in a one-hour foot race or a one-hour time trial on a bicycle. It can probably improve your performance between 1% and 3%, which is you know, often the winning time yeah. in one of these races. How much discussion has there been about banning caffeine in athletes? Is such a thing ever part of the discussion? It's, it's often part of the discussion, and the, the trend is towards less regulation and not more. And, and I know that sounds strange in this era that, in which we're so concerned about doping. But the tricky thing about caffeine is that the optimal dose for enhancing performance is not much higher. It's really right in the range of what a moderate to heavy coffee drinker would drink daily. So the challenges of, of uh, regulating the substance would be uh, really, really, really tricky. And so the, 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 there's actually been a tendency, a trend towards less regulation and not more. Now, the NCAA, uh, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, still does have an upper limit on caffeine use, but it's rather high. But for most uh, sports, it's perfectly legal. Now, just as an aside, you write in this book that I think, it, what is it, a tablespoon of caffeine is enough to kill you? Yeah, the pure powdered form of caffeine is actually you know, really strong. We think of it as a mild drug because, of course, we take it in very small doses. So, you know, a, a cup of coffee, a, a strong cup of coffee might have a, a 16th of a teaspoon full of caffeine. A, a soda would have like a 64th of a teaspoon. But a heaping tablespoon, about 10 grams, would be a, a lethal dose. Coffee has a lot more caffeine than soda is what you just said there. A lot more, yeah, quite a bit, and and even uh, than energy drinks, than most energy drinks, which is a su- surprise to a lot of people. Yeah, y- yeah. Let's talk about athletes in high altitudes, which uh, obviously applies to many people in Colorado. Um, do the benefits that you've seen in triathletes, for instance, does this translate? I don't know to mountain climbers or skiers. Yeah, it seems to be. I mean, there there's been some more research about this recently. There. In the old days, uh, climbers used to sort of, uh, and high-altitude athletes used to sort of stay away from caffeine. They, they thought it would be harmful, might uh, contribute to some of the headaches, et cetera. 
but it seems like it may actually not be harmful and, and may actually give, be uh, lending some benefits to athletes at high altitudes. I'm fascinated uh, to learn that the military has a long history with caffeine, starting with coffee and tea, but now there are many more ways to deliver caffeine. Uh, what does caffeine mean in today's military? Well, the, the military has done some of the best modern caffeine research, and the reason is that soldiers are often in the exact conditions in which they would get the most benefit from caffeine. So they're exhausted, and, they, and yet they need to be vigilant. And caffeine can really help with vigilance, uh, you know, the, the ability to detect sort of infrequent but potentially life-threatening stimuli. That's one of the things that caffeine can really help for. So the military has been formulating a lot of different products to, to uh, deliver caffeine most effectively to people in the field. And how have they done that? What are ways uh, besides coffee and tea? So, well, there, there's uh, chewing gum, which is uh, widely available in rations. There's applesauce, if you can believe it, called zapplesauce. And there are energy bars. And uh, there is even what they call caffeinated tube food that's specially formulated for the pilots of the U-2 spy planes that, that fly at, at high altitudes. So there, there's a whole variety of caffeine delivery mechanisms that are specially formulated for people in uniform. I just want to make sure that you said Zapplesauce. <laughs> I said Zapplesauce. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Murray Carpenter joins us. His new book is called Caffeinated, How Our Daily Habit Helps, Hurts, and Hooks Us. And uh, he got interested in this area really as a student at CU Boulder when he was um, traipsing around the coffee shops in Boulder at the time. And, uh, Murray, one of the chapters in your book is called the first Red Bull was a Coke. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, this was one of the things that really interested me as I stumbled onto it. Back in 1909, there was a very hard-charging uh, commissioner of, of the agency that would become the, the Food and Drug Administration. His name was Harvey Wiley. And he really disliked Coca-Cola. He thought that Coca-Cola was uh, adding caffeine from uh, other sources than, uh, than the cola nut. He thought it was being marketed to children. He thought it was addictive. And he ended up confiscating a batch of Coca-Cola. And this led to a big court case that, that went on for years, went all the way to the Supreme Court, uh, the United States versus 40 barrels and 20 kegs of Coca-Cola. But uh, the reason I named the chapter that is because in those days, an eight-ounce serving of Coca-Cola, which was a common serving size, the exact size of a, a small can of Red Bull, had 80 milligrams of caffeine, so exactly the same size and same amount of uh, caffeine as a modern Red Bull. So this notion that energy drinks are a new phenomenon is uh, thrown out the window in that point. What, what happened to this trial that I think takes place, what, 1911, right? That's right. It started in 1911. So one of the things that it prompted was some really interesting early caffeine research, but it ended up uh, bouncing back and forth through the courts. It, it, it kind of ended up where a lot of the conversations about caffeine uh, get to, which is uh, Coke has less uh, caffeine than coffee. What would you do next? Regulate our coffee. And so it, it ended up going to the Supreme Court. And by the time it was remanded to a lower court, uh, Coke had changed the formula in its product and convinced the judge that the original charges were no longer warranted. And so it was settled with a consent decree. But the really fascinating thing to me about this case is that 
the questions they were asking at that time, is caffeine different when it's added to uh, Coke than when we take it in coffee? Is it safe for children, these kind of products? Are they safe for children? And what role should the federal government play in regulating it? Those are the exact same questions that we're asking right now about energy drinks. Murray, you found that most of the caffeine in soft drinks comes from China. You visited plants there, in fact. What was that like? What did you learn? Well, and this was another area that I that I hadn't anticipated going into the book. I, I really didn't know where the caffeine comes from that's used in uh, in soft drinks. And we use quite a bit. And this is, the, again, the pure powdered form that we talked about earlier that's, right. in, in, that's, that's quite uh, powerful when it's, in, when it's concentrated. Some of it still comes from decaffeination of, of coffee beans. And I did uh, visit a decaffeinator in Texas where they do this. But much of it now is synthesized in pharmaceutical plants. And so this is basically you're taking the chemical precursors to caffeine, uh, urea, chloracetic acid, and cooking them up together and making caffeine. Most of it is now made in overseas pharmaceutical plants, and the industry is quite opaque. So it, it was a, a bit of an eye-opener. Does your experience visiting the Chinese factory color your feelings at all about uh, drinking caffeinated sodas? Uh, I'm, I'm not a huge soda drinker anyway, but uh, I'll say it's, it, it, I wouldn't say I stay away from them, but uh, I'm, I, it, I find it a more interesting product than I did before. How's that? <laughs> Uh, You write about how story is part of what sells coffee today. Many baby boomers will remember TV commercials uh, from when they were kids that featured a character named Juan Valdez. He became an icon. What was going on when Juan led his mule onto our TV screens? Juan Valdez actually emerged from sort of a coffee crisis. Coffee consumption peaked in the U.S., shortly after World War II. And this is something else that surprises people is we drink far less coffee now than our grandparents did. Yeah, that that to me was like one of the biggest revelations of this book because I think of the fact that there is a Starbucks or a local coffee seller on every corner and I'm thinking we can't possibly have ever uh, been drinking less coffee than we do today, but that's not the case. No, but I'm I'm with you. That that was my exact response too. And it it was only once I talked to people in the coffee industry. Now people in the coffee industry know this quite well, but you know the rest of us, it's 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 really shocking. I mean, you have to think of it in those days that the break room always had three pots of coffee going. Uh, you know, your grandparents had the pot perking all the time, and there weren't as many options. There weren't weren't as many Coca Colas and and other beverage options. But as coffee uh, consumption started to decline. The Colombian coffee growers, their prices were plummeting, and they really wanted to differentiate themselves in the marketplace. And so they started, uh, they developed Juan Valdez, this uh, pitch man for Colombian coffee. And what he did was he really uh, defined a a coffee storyline that remains today, the coffee farmer who just wants to grow and produce an exceptional cup of coffee and and deliver it to you, the American coffee drinker. And and really with, uh, by doing this, he sort of paved the way for the the Starbucks generation, and 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 you can really uh, see a lot of that that same sort of marketing uh, still in in Starbucks and even in the third wave, uh, the the really upper top tier coffees that are now becoming popular. They're still, I think, they owe a lot of their marketing strategies to uh, to Juan Valdez. To Juan Valdez, you also yeah. write that that the industry invented the term coffee break, which is, is such a part of yeah. the common parlance. Yeah, it was it was a way to to help to promote coffee again in this era when when there was concerns that 
coffee consumption was was dropping off. I can hear my tea-drinking friends saying, Ryan, why didn't you ask about tea? Uh, Are tea drinkers getting a lot less caffeine, about the same? How does it compare? They're they're getting less. And, uh, yeah, a cup of tea, a strong cup of tea might have 40 to 50 milligrams of caffeine. So it would be about a a third or less the amount in a cup of coffee. But it's still a significant amount of caffeine. And it's for a lot of people, it's an ideal, you know, it's an ideal way to get caffeine. And there are also a lot of coffee drinkers who find that they drink coffee in the morning and maybe a cup of tea in the afternoon. What did you find about caffeine's addictive qualities? Just how addictive or not is it? Well, you know, the term itself is is fraught, and and it's it's one we have to be careful about. I I do use the terms uh, addictive and addiction throughout the book, uh, but I don't mean to equate it to you know an opiate addiction or that sort of thing that ruins lives and and tears families apart. But it is addictive in this sense that uh, people who use caffeine tend to use it daily, uh, tend to crave it. We develop a partial tolerance to it, and uh, most notably, if we quit using caffeine abruptly, we'll develop one of uh, or several uh, withdrawal symptoms that are pretty predictable. And the most notable of these is the withdrawal headache. Uh And it doesn't take that much uh, caffeine to develop an addiction, 100 milligrams a day. So, you know, a small cup of coffee, three cans of Coke uh, for your tea drinking friends, you know, two or three cups of tea. What's your takeaway from writing this book? I think the, the, the bottom line is uh, caffeine really deserves more respect. I, I think it gets short <laughs> shrift. No, really, it, it, because I, I think we, you know, we joke about it. Oh, hey, I need more caffeine. You know, I'm going to the coffee shop, et cetera. But it, it really does. It, it plays a, a major role in our lives, in our daily patterns, in our social activities, and, uh, and particularly in commerce. You know, if you take, if you combine the tea industry and the coffee industry and, and the soft drink in, industry, it's massive, worth more than $100 billion in the U.S. annually. So caffeine, I, I think it really just deserves a little more attention and a little more respect. Very briefly, have you changed anything about your own coffee drinking or caffeine consumption uh, after writing the book? I have. I, I cut back, but, you know, just a little bit. I'm still... <laughs> yeah, you're already on your third cup. Come on, Murray. What, That's what? it, right. <laughs> now, when I say cup, i got to be careful with this. I'm not drinking three of those big Starbucks things a day. I, about three to four, six-ounce cups of coffee a day is, is my habit. So, But, yeah, I actually drank more before I started doing this reporting. Nice to speak with you. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. Murray Carpenter speaking with Ryan Warner in 2014. Carpenter's book is called Caffeinated, How Our Daily Habit Helps, Hurts, and Hooks Us. The Boulder Bach Festival's recent Venice on Fire concerts explored Italian Baroque music using an unusual mix of acoustic and electric instruments. Three musicians from the festival came by the CPR Performance Studio to share 17th century music by composer Barbara Strozzi. Performed on guitar, violin, and cello, all electric, the result is a haunting mix of Baroque arpeggios and jazz-like guitar chords.
To see a video of this performance and learn more about the Boulder Bach Festival's Venice on Fire project, go to cprclassical.org. That's our show for today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.